So welcome, and it's so great to uh, be with you guys. Um, I can tell you the story behind Five Kids is we, um, we tried for a year, on our fifth year of marriage, to have a child. We couldn't fall pregnant. And Julie went for a walk and came back, and she said that God had spoken to her and had said, we're going to have four children. I was like, wow. And then uh, soon after that, we had a child, Eli, and that child's name was actually given to Julie in a dream. God told her that a boy would be born in this month, and his name would be Eli. And lo and behold, a boy arrives that month. And Finn, two years later, to the date, and then Ivy, our only girl. And then after three kids, I said to Julie, I said, so when are we going to try for uh, number four? And she said, no, no, we're done. So I said, but you said, God said. She said, no, no, you have to test the prophetic words. And she's thought about it. God would never be so cruel as to give us another child because we were properly drowning. I mean, properly just drowning emotionally, financially, physically. We just was coming undone. And uh, so I, I could see that she was speaking out of her desperateness. And a few months later, I, I you know, asked again. And she said, okay, you've got two months to see what you can do. But then I must have the snip. And, uh, and then she tried to dodge me, dodge me. And uh, lo and behold, when she did fall pregnant, which was fairly soon after this, um, she, we woke up one, she woke up, she said, oh, you wouldn't believe it, I had a dream we were going to have twins, can you believe it? And we're like, ha, 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 and uh, didn't realize it was actually a dream given by God, because a few weeks later, she came home from the gynae and said, Taryn, we're not having another child, and my heart sunk, and she said, we're having two, and then my heart sunk even more, <laughs> And I remember just the world starting to spin, and I walked out into the garden. I was like, God, what's going on here? I mean, we really can't handle five. I, you know, I thought it was four. Was it even you? God, if you could just speak to me now, it'd be so wonderful because it feels like the world is out of control. It's off its orbit. And I remember just standing outside trying to be still, and God did. He just spoke one word to me. It's all I needed to hear. He just said, surprise. <laughs> And then little Charlie and Sam arrived, and we're so glad they have arrived. Well, today I want to speak to you about why I believe in Jesus with all my heart, and why I invite others to. Um, if you know anything about me, I am fairly passionate about sharing the gospel with lots of people. And the only reason I'm passionate about that is because I believe in the gospel with all of my heart. And I've got three goals in my message today. The first one is if you believe in Jesus that you believe in Jesus a little bit more by the end of this message. That's what I'm praying. And then secondly, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, or you're not sure what you believe about him, that you would reconsider, that you'd reconsider. And thirdly, if you do believe in Jesus, I pray that you'd feel such a joy about believing in Jesus that you just want to share it, and you would feel it would be wrong to keep it to yourself. And you might even think of some people that you should start praying for and inviting to church and having spiritual conversations with. Maybe you can even invite them tonight. I'm going to preach again tonight. Okay. So that's my goal. That's what I'm hoping for. So let me get right at it. Six reasons I believe in Jesus with all my heart and I invite others to. First reason I believe in Jesus with all my heart is that God pursues us. I'll tell you why. I wouldn't be a Christian if it was about us pursuing God. Because I wasn't interested in God or the gospel. God came seeking after me. And I shouldn't be surprised if you've read the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the part of the Bible that tells us about Jesus' life on earth. One thing you notice about Jesus is he went after people who were not interested in God or who felt that they weren't worthy of God. Um, famous story of this uh, guy who had very corrupt financially, had stolen a lot of money from people, Zacchaeus, short little guy, and wasn't in, 
and when Jesus was walking through town, people wanted to check out this dude that everyone was talking about. Zacchaeus couldn't even get to the front. Nobody would give him gaff. So he climbed a tree at the back of the crowd. By the time he managed to scramble up this tree, he heard somebody call his name. And there's Jesus standing at the bottom of the tree saying, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to eat at your house. And uh, Zacchaeus can't believe his luck. Everyone's like, that scumbag. And Jesus hangs out with a guy. By the end of the day, Zacchaeus is a changed man. He's gone from miserly to generous. And, uh, and, he, and, and then Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. It's like salvation invaded Zacchaeus' life. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And then Jesus walks from there, and he makes a beeline for the cross. He's going straight to Jerusalem where he's going to die on the cross. And by the way, Jesus on the cross is still seeking and saving the lost. While he's on earth, he can only reach a few people here and there. But once he dies on the cross, it means that every, everyone in human history, he can reach them. He can call out through his spirit. And what he does on the cross means that he can reach the people that were the furthest away from God. Uh, a few years ago, I was at a 21st, and this girl came up to me and said, Hey, we've got some mutual friends. I'm not a Christian, she said, but I know you're a Christian and you know the Bible quite well. I had a dream. I wonder if you could interpret for me. So I was like, okay, let's try. She tells me the dream of this cliff face. At the top of the cliff face, there's this heart. And she desperately wants to be at the top of the, the cliff to get to this heart. So she starts to climb. When she gets about halfway, she starts to slip, climb, slip, climb, slip. She's exhausted, desperate. She's about to give up in her dream. She looks down at the bottom of the cliff face. There is a trampoline. She's like, oh, wow. And you don't do this in real life. You just do it in a dream. She lets go of the cliff face, falls onto the trampoline, and bounces right to the top, to the heart. And she wakes up so happy. She says, what do you think the dream means? I, I say, I know what it means. Ephesians chapter 2 says, it is by grace you've been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a simple verse that says, you don't get to God through religious deeds and devotion, because none of us is good enough to get to God. You get to God by grace. You see, religion is humanity's search for God. Jesus is God's search for humanity. Religion says, you know, if you do this, that, this, that, this, that, you can earn God's acceptance. You can be with, with God, you know, you'll be taken into his, into his circle. But, but, but the gospel comes and says, nobody's good enough. You can't get to the top. Your life is fraught with failure, like everybody else except Jesus. And what Jesus has done is he has come down and he's taken the punishment our sins deserves so that he is like a trampoline of mercy. And we've just got to admit that we are sinners and let go of our efforts to save ourselves and trust in Jesus. And we bounce right into God's grace. So I said this to her. And, and mind you, it doesn't stop there. After Jesus dies on the cross, he rises from the dead. Then he goes to heaven and he sends his spirit and he sends his church out with a gospel message and says, go get him. And God's love like a heat-seeking missile goes after people far from God. It's been doing that for 2,000 years now. I mean, I was not interested in God and yet God came heat-seeking missile after me. Tell you what happened in my story. My parents were, I was five when my parents got divorced. When I was 16, my father who was only 36 at the time, died of AIDS, one of the first 100 people in the country to die of the horrible disease. In fact, Dave Kettles, who's a member in this church, as a new doctor, was looking after my father and other people that were dying. And uh, my dad dies when I'm 36. And my life, which had seemed wonderful, filled with girls and parties and surfing, suddenly comes undone. I've got a question. What's the meaning of life? 
make it worse, now there's a lot of awkwardness. People don't know what to do with a kid whose dad has died. So people are like, how are you? Or they avoid you. But I've got one friend who just seems very confident to move towards me in my pain. Nathan. Nathan Ganetsky, his dad, Graham Ganetsky, leads the church in Glen Eden. And Nathan is my buddy. One Christian friend. And he always comes to me, how are you doing? I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. He wants to talk. One night he phones me. He says, hey man, how are you doing today? So I said, you know, I'm hurting, but it's so good to know my dad is in heaven, eh, Nathan? And then we get talking about heaven. He says something from the Bible. Then he asked me a question, which is very rude. Very rude. He says, Taryn, uh, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? And I was like, yeah, of course. I put the phone down and I'm freaked out. Because I never doubted that if there was a heaven, I'd get there. And yet at age 16, I'd been accumulating some stuff that I, I shouldn't be doing. So I was like, oh my goodness. What if I don't get into heaven? I can't tell anyone this. I'm freaked out. So I chat to my buddy who is a proper badass guy. I mean, he's, he's the only friend that I had who took drugs and encouraged other people to take drugs. I mean, that's badass. And, um, but a really good surfer. And I remember hanging out with him and saying, hey, Brendan, bro, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? He was equally freaked out. Tear runs down his face. I'm like, oh my gosh, I felt that too. So I said, I think we should check out Nathan's youth group. Nathan seems to know a lot about what happens when you die. And that Friday, Brendan goes, I get cold feet, I bail. Saturday morning, I go to Brendan's house. Bree, let's go surfing, let's go surfing. He's all quiet and reflective. I'm like, what's wrong? He says, bro, I went to youth last night. I got saved. I'm like, oh, what have I done? You're such an awesome guy. Of course, it was a sign of things to come. I mean, if you can lead people to Jesus before you're a Christian, imagine if you actually became a Christian, you could do a good job of that. So now I've got two friends who are Christians, Nathan and Brendan, who are inviting me to church, trying to have spiritual conversations with me, and building up my defenses. I'll never go to church with these guys. Then their church organizes a surf camp. So if people won't go from the beach to the church, the church needs to go to the beach because God is somebody who seeks and saves. And I agree. And I go on the surf camp through Jeffreys Bay and I land up in Ganubi, East London at age 16. And, um, and on the fourth night of the surf camp, fifth night of the surf camp, Roy Harley, who heads up Christian surfers internationally from Jeffreys Bay around the corner, he is the camp speaker. And he shares stories from his life and from the Bible. You can see he has something I don't. You could see. And uh, making me think. And the fourth night, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and I want to sing some songs, and this guy's going to talk again. And I kind of endure it, just wanted to get over, over and done with. But while Roy is speaking, this happens. I just feel God saying it's time. I just feel this powerful tug. It was almost irresistible in its feeling. Before I know, before the night is done, I put up my hand. Roy's chatted with me. I've prayed a prayer. And Roy says, why don't you just sit in a room now and get to know God? You know, now that the relationship has started. I remember just sitting there going, hi, God. You know, the beginning of a relationship. Next morning, I wake up, and as I wake up, my first thought is, what have I done? (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Because, you know, you're just like, what did I do? And uh, so now I'm really in a bit of a panic. And then we go to breakfast, and then they they sing some songs, and as they start singing songs, I realize something is different about me. Because the songs, which used to be 2D, are now 3D. And you can feel God's presence. And the Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. I've got some kind of spiritual software that's made God accessible to me in a way that wasn't before. And I'm bitten. I'm like, this is real. 
I've got what Roy was speaking about. Um, you know, so, so my story is a story of God pursuing me, and I love that about God. Uh, I love that about God. The second reason that I believe uh, in Jesus with all my heart, and I invite others to, is that the evidence is strong. Okay, I did. I was quite thoughtful. I did quite well at school. I used to think of myself as an objective guy. But here I am going on a surf camp and getting sideswiped by this powerful spiritual experience. But I've asked myself the question, have I been duped? I mean, is this thing even factually right? Um, so first thing I wonder is, is this, does this contradict the findings of science? Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the world, the heavens and the earth. And, uh, and, and you know what? Scientists, especially nowadays, uh, well, not all scientists, but some will say, science has disproven God. And that is the most unscientific statement, by the way. Because science, science doesn't have anything to do with meaning. You don't discover, discover meaning through science. You discover mechanism. You discover how things work, how they are made. So if a kettle is boiling and you come in and you say, why is the kettle boiling? And I would say, oh, there's electric energy that's flowing through and it's turning into heat energy. That is a scientific answer. It's mechanism. But if you go, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. Why is the kettle boiling? I'd go, oh, meaning, not mechanism. No, no, I'll put it on because I want some coffee. Do you want? Okay. That's faith. That's the gospel. The gospel gives us meaning. And I'm so glad that we don't just have mechanism as awesome as science is, respect science. We've also got meaning that comes through the gospel. If science doesn't contradict faith, I don't think science can prove God any more than it can disprove God. Maybe, maybe I would say that the evidence does err on the probability of God. Uh, even extreme likelihood, the way I see it, but it's not, you could, you, you could logically sidestep it somehow as philosophers do. But, but just think about it. Uh, scientists say that over 13 billion years ago, in an event called the Big Bang, nothing becomes everything. I'm like, wow. Okay. That's a Big Bang. That sounds like you need a Big Banger. I mean, because the law of cause and effect says nothing happens unless something causes it to happen. So, so God is a stronger argument, you know, even, even there. Uh, the second evidence that is strong is, is that the gospel is a claim about history. Very different to religious claims and philosophical claims, which have to do with these ideas that people have, philosophies. The gospel says that on a certain day, a little baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem. On a certain day, in his 30th year, Jesus died on a cross in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate. On a certain day, he rose again from the dead. On a certain day, he went up to heaven. On a certain day, his disciples were in the upper room and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon them. Okay, this is a claim about history. If these are not historical claims, they're a lie. So the question is, uh, are they his historically factual? And, uh, and so I asked this question, and somebody lent me this book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think there are better books that have been written since then on the subject, but it was compelling. Josh McDowell, who writes the book, is a university student, really bright guy. Many of his friends become Christians. He's so irritated by this, he wants to help them. So he tries to disprove Christianity, and he, he collects as much data as he can about whether the resurrection happened. He knows if he can disprove the resurrection, he can save these guys from this heresy, this lie. Of course, the more he investigates it, the more he can't believe how much evidence there is historically for the resurrection. And he becomes a reluctant Christian and writes a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. All that to say the evidence is strong. Uh, science and history don't contravene, don't clash with the claims 
of the gospel. This was really important to me. The third reason that I believe in Jesus with all my heart and I invite others to is, is that the God Jesus reveals is wonderful. The God Jesus reveals is wonderful. Uh, every now and then you, I meet somebody who doesn't believe in God. And uh, I ask them, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And then they'll tell me about this God who's angry, who's absent, who's distant, who's uncaring. And I say, ah, I don't believe in that God either. We believe the same. Here's the thing. You don't get to create God. You just get to discover who he is. And I'm so glad that the God that Jesus reveals turns out to be such a wonderful person. I mean, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, Jesus is this eternal son of God becoming human. I mean, so in other words, if you want to see God up close and personal with skin on, look at Jesus. Just look at him. I mean, wow, if God is like that, I am interested. I'm glad that God is like that. See, it's not just that Jesus is God-like. It turns out that God is Christ-like. And, 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 and Jesus shows us not only what God is like, uh, Jesus shows us that God is involved. There's a belief system called deism, which says, you know, God made the world, the universe. He wound it up like a clock, and then he stepped away, and it's just unwinding. He's no longer involved. He's detached from his creation. Um, and Jesus disproves that strongly. I mean, the fact that God would visit his own creation, become one of us, shows that this is the kind of God who likes to stay involved with what he has created. And he is emotionally connected to what he has made. I mean, creation is God's artwork. So that every square centimeter in space, every moment in time, uh, every muon and gluon and quark and proton, uh, every mountain, every galaxy, every uh, planet, every anthill, every sparrow, every whale, every child, it's all his artwork. Um, maybe, maybe an analogy is, if you can imagine it, imagine that you are, for bizarre reasons, were separated from your, your parents as a child, and you lost each other. And uh, one day as an adult, you, you walk into this gallery, and you find art, it's the most compelling, breathtaking art you've ever seen, and, and all you can think is, whoever made this art is an amazing person. And then the person next to you, as you get chatting to them about the art, turns out to be the artist. And now you're not looking at the art anymore. You're just engaging this person. They're two or three decades older than you, but they are. You already know a lot about them, but as you talk to them, you discover so much more. I mean, God is like that, by the way. You look at God's creation, you go, wow. And then you realize whoever made this must be even more wow. And then it turns out that the God who made it is, is present, accessible, here amongst us, involved. And then imagine, if you can, that as you talk with this person, you figure out that this is your long-lost parent. And it turns out that not only are you in the gallery, but you are this person's finest art piece because you're made in their image. And this person is your father or your mother, whatever you've got in your mind. I mean, that's a picture of the gospel. God is involved in creation and you are his art piece. You're made in his image. Uh, all that to say, the God Jesus reveals is wonderful. Fourth reason that I believe in Jesus with all my heart and I invite others to believe um, is, is that Jesus carries us in our pain. He carries us in our pain. I don't know if you've ever tried memorizing scripture. Okay, if you're going to do it, I recommend it. Just start with a, the shortest verse in the Bible. You could even try to remember it now. Jesus wept. <laughs> Two words. 
two profound words because it tells us that God's heart is not made of stone. It's an open wound of flesh, an open wound of love. God cares about our pain. I mean, when you look at the cross, you remember the Son of God went to the cross, you realize that God is not immune to suffering. Wouldn't it be hard to believe in a God, in, in all the suffering in this world, if this God didn't feel the pain, was totally removed from, from that pain? The fact that, that Jesus went to the cross, endured that scorn and that suffering, helps us understand that God has walked in your shoes. He knows the pain. He can identify with you in the pain. And he walks with you still, even carries you sometimes. Um, when I became a Christian, I'd gone through some real hardships, and I thought, okay, now that I've got Jesus in my life, I think it's plain sailing from here. Couldn't have been more wrong. Storm after storm has hit my boat as the decades have gone on. Gone on. And it dawned on me that life is hard without Jesus, and life is hard with Jesus. But I tell you, I'd rather have Jesus in my boat when the storm comes. Especially somebody who can feel the pain with you, who cares for you in the pain, who can give meaning to the pain. I mean, you go through a horrible situation and you realize, okay, this didn't catch God off God. He's still in control. That gives you, gave me strength. And that he's going to use this pain to do something beautiful in my life. Making more, me more humble, more human, more accessible, more empathetic. And one of the things pain does is it breaks through the superficiality, which feels fantastic, but is killing you like a cancer. I mean, C.S. Lewis, he says, he says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and a dying world. The person can be not interested in God at all until pain hits them, and suddenly they go, tell me I'm missing something. What is it? What is it? And God can use pain to wake us up to spiritual realities. Jesus is a wound, wounded healer. His pain becomes the source of my healing, and your pain becomes the source of comfort to another. One scripture says, God is the God of all comfort and compassion, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others with the trouble that we ourselves have received. You go through pain, God will never waste that pain. He can use that pain and your comfort you've received from God to minister to someone else. And it's amazing how you'll bring those people across your path. Okay, all that to say, Jesus carries us in our pain, and I'm so grateful about that. So grateful. I don't have to be in the storms alone. There's somebody in my boat who's stronger than the storm, and you can still identify with my agony. And then a fifth reason that I believe in Jesus with all my heart, and I invite others to, and it's this. It's that um, life is short. Eternity is real. Life is short and eternity is real. Uh, ever since we've been able to extend our lives by a few decades, and our kids are going to live you know, a decade longer than us probably with medical advances, we live with this illusion that we're never going to die. It just feels like you've got like millions of days between now. You know, you're just, just going to keep coming. And all that's real is this moment right now. And then you read the gospel, and mind you, you just give it some thought, and you realize that's not true at all. Life is incredibly brief. Have you ever stood in front of a gravestone and there's a, there's a name of a person and then there's a birth date, the death date, and then what's between the birth date and the death date? A little dash. You, you want to know what their life was? Their life was that dash. Your life is a dash. My life is a dash and we're really quite far through the dash, some of us. Others of us just getting started. But life moves quick. 
And if we think about the brevity of our life and we remember that eternity is real, it can help us live a life so that our dash glows. Our dash means something. It becomes a, a conductor of eternal reality. Because, by the way, the Bible says that it's destined for a person to live once and after that to face judgment. I mean, you might have a life that's filled with thousands of choices. But when you die, there are really only two possibilities. Possibility one, according to the gospel, you will pay for your own sins. Possibility two, you die and you're embraced by the one who has already paid for your sins because you trusted in him. The Bible says that when you die, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's an amazing comfort. It's so good to know that when I die, there's someone on the other side. And eternity is real and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And uh, I've got to be honest with you, there have been times in my Christian life where I go, what if I die? And it turns out it's not true and there's nothing on the other side. Doubt. I mean, doubt is normal. It's part of the faith journey. And I remind myself, hang on, Jesus rose again from the dead. That's proof that there's life beyond the grave. Jesus said he came from heaven. So on good authority, he you know, tells me about the place he came from. But something happened in my life that so profoundly knocked over the doubt of the life beyond the grave. I just want to tell it to you because it illustrates how brief life is and how real eternity is. I was 24 at the time. And I went on a day or two-day surf trip to still buy from Cape Town. I stayed in a backpacker. It was nighttime. I'd had great surf. I was just loving life. And I was praying. I could feel God's presence. I opened up my journal as I sensed God just speaking thoughts into my head. I'm sounding super spiritual here. Hey? I mean, it doesn't happen all the time. I'm telling you all these cool stories. But they've happened over decades here and there. And, uh, so, and I feel God saying to me, Ryan, that's my brother, is about to come to me full force. He was already a Christian. That was a fascinating thought. He'll come to me full force, and your mother will become a Christian. And I will use your, Ryan to spark your spiritual life in many people. I go to bed just going, that sounds awesome. What does it mean? I'm not sure. Sounds cool, though. I wake up the next morning, 47 minutes past 5, 28th of May, cold, wintry morning. Phone rings. It's my mom's boyfriend. He's, not a, an, he's an atheist quite anti-Christian, and he phones me. I go, Mike, what's up? He says, Taryn, something bad happened last night. What happened? Ryan got killed in a car accident, head-on collision. You need to come home. You need to be with your mom. And you know when you have a nightmare, and then you wake up and you're so relieved? I, I hope that was about to happen, because I was in this weird wake-up state. But I didn't wake up out of it. It was real. Worst moment of my life. Worst moment of my life. And um, so the, they, they, this backpacker people, they drive me to Swellendam halfway back to Cape Town. Two of my friends, Sonia and Karina, drive to Swellendam to pick me up. And we're driving in this thick mist back to Cape Town. And I'm in this stupor of confusion and pain. And I suddenly remember what I'd written the night before. Ryan will come to me full force. So I read it to Sonia and Karina. Guys, listen to this, what God said to me last night. As it dawns on me, is there a more literal fulfillment of going to Jesus full force than dying instantly in a head-on collision? If it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. Brother's driving, he hits the, the middle of the island, it sucks him over into the oncoming traffic, bright light, smash, dies instantly. Bright lights, and then he sees Jesus' face. He will come to me with full force. 
And I say, I say to these two girls, and they start screaming. And then it re- I realized they haven't even heard what I read to them. They're screaming because in the thick mist, there's this shaft of light next to the car, right, traveling with us. I think to myself, wow, this shaft of light must be shining from the sun above. And then I realized the sun's still on the horizon. I'm sure there's some scientific explanation, but it was, I'd never seen something like it before. This, it's like a rainbow, but it wasn't a rainbow. It's just pure white light next to us. Five minutes, it stays with us. And I tell you what impacted me is I just read these words, made the connection, the bright light, and in that moment, it's like a shaft of light shone into my heart, and I just experienced supernatural peace and such a sense that God was in control. It was like the most peaceful experience I could have ever had. Like everything was okay. I had that feeling. Everything's okay. Even a bit of joy as I knew Jesus, Ryan was with Jesus and he was fine. Anyway, I know my mom now, she'll never believe. I mean, how could you believe in a God who allows your son to die in an accident? How? So I see her and we hug and we cry. And then after a few minutes, she steps back and she says, Terran, God has given me a miracle. I can hardly believe my ears. My mom, she's not a Christian. And I thought, what, what do you mean? So she tells me the story how the night before she went to bed early, but her boyfriend was working late at work. And as he's leaving work, he sees a Bible at the office and has the bizarre thought, it is bizarre when you're an atheist, to pick up the Bible, to take it home, to put it next to your, your sleeping girlfriend. She wakes up to the news of Ryan's death, sees the Bible, finds out what had happened, how it got there. Her sister comes around a few hours later, they're crying. And then she says to her sister, please, the book is a sign. Open it. Read it to me. And her sister randomly flips open the Bible. My mom puts a bookmark so we know what it said. And reads these words. Trust in God. Trust also in me. It's Jesus speaking. Do not let your heart be troubled. I'm going to go to the Father's place. And I'm going to prepare a beautiful place where you're going to be with me forever. I'm going to come back. I'll personally escort you. You're in safe hands. For I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In that moment, my mom knows that that Jesus is real, that Ryan is in heaven, and she becomes a Christian. She's a Christian to this day. And as for sparking off life in many people, as I've shared this story, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people come to faith over the years. I say this to illustrate my point. Life is short. Future is uncertain. But eternity is real. We should live our short life in the light of eternity so that our dash can glow. It can be a conductor of kingdom reality. And then a fifth, a sixth reason, my final point that I've got for you, that I believe in Jesus with all my heart and I invite others to, is that, is that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I mean, I've been known this forever, but the longer I'm a Christian, the sweeter these words become to me. Um, there's a famous theologian called Cole Bart who wrote reams of books in the last century. And as he's on his deathbed, he's Theological students say to him, so what's the bottom line, Cole? What did you learn? Can you, can you break it down for us? And he, and he answers, he says, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that is right at the heart of the Christian faith. And, 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 and God speaks those words. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Neither height nor depth, height nor depth neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, uh, nor any powers or anything in creation is able to separate you from the love of God. These are spoken words. I'm so glad that he said the words. Having said what I just said, it's good to know that he followed through with action. Because uh, I don't know if any of you have like, loved someone and then you broke up. 
and you said, I love you, I'll never leave you. And then four months later, you, they were going out with your friend. You know, so words are good, but they need some action. And God has not just spoken the word of love. He's demonstrated it on the cross. He did, he showed you the lengths of his love, that he loves you so much. He would rather die than live without you, which is what he did on the cross. God shows you his undying love by dying in your place on the cross. He demonstrates this love. And mind you, he doesn't just speak the love and demonstrate the love. He pours out love in your heart. One of my favorite verses, it's a favorite verse because it describes what I've lived in for over 20 years. Romans 5 verse 5. God pours out love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Hundreds of times. Sometimes very gently, other times mightily. I've had an experience of God's presence, God's nearness, his power. Most importantly, his love. I felt the love of God. Sometimes singing uh, with other people. Sometimes praying with other people, sometimes on my own while I'm reading the Bible or praying or thinking. Sometimes out the blue, just struck with the sense of God loving me in those moments. I know that I know that I know that God loves me. I wish I could have that feeling all the time. But it comes when it comes and God chooses those times. And I tell you why this love is so important, that Jesus loves it. It makes all the difference. One, it can satisfy the deepest chamber of your heart like nothing else can. As human beings, we look for love in all the wrong places. There's, there's no perfect human being that could satisfy the deepest chamber of your heart. No, no human could, could, could satisfy the depths of your longing for love like God can. I mean, by the way, if you want strength to your marriage, put Jesus first, let his love fill your heart, and instead of trying to get love from your partner, come to love, come with love to your partner, and that love is from Christ. It's amazing how Jesus, you both keep going back to him, how he can sustain the love within a marriage. Because you're not looking to each other as the source. But I'll tell you what else this love does. This love can give you a sense of purpose. Because once you discover God's love, the question is, okay, I love being loved, but now what? And the thing is that as God loves you, he awakens love in you so that you can love him back. You love up, so to speak. You love you, 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 He loves you and you love Him back in, in worship, in prayer, in, in talking to Him, in, in trusting Him, surrendering to Him, listening to Him. You love Him back. That's a tremendous sense of purpose. And, and not only do you love Him back, you love each other. Because when you discover that God is your Father, you look around, you go, you must be my brother. You must be my sister. That makes us family. And you know what they say? You can choose your friends because you, you can't choose your family. I mean, who would ever choose, you know, if you're in a, a, a small group, these, you just land in a group, you find out who your family is, you learn to love them. You learn to love them. And as you love them, you go, I actually couldn't have chosen better than you. I couldn't have chosen better than you. We learn to love each other. There's tremendous purpose that comes from the fact that I'm going to follow Jesus. There's going to be some people we're going to build each other up in faith and in love. But it doesn't stop there. We need to love up. We need to love in. We also need to love out. As many needs as there are in the world, there are opportunities for your life to be a riverbank of love. Last night, we had a, we had a briar with uh, many of the leaders in this church. And we were particularly struck by Andrew and Michelle. Michelle has got this fostering home, seven little children over and above their four biological kids that they pour their lives out into. And as we drove home, uh, Julie was talking to the, our kids about this amazing thing Michelle is doing. And she said the words, you know, there's so many ways to show God's love in this world. 
Maybe some of you end up doing what daddy does, like preaching. But there are other ways to show God's love. Like Michelle, uh, she pours her life out into these little children. And now she's not just trying to help the children, she's trying to fix the system. She's going to go study at Forte next year, social work, so that she can penetrate the systems that will make more kids be cared for more effectively. Just such a, and if you, if you track it back, why are Andrew and Michelle doing this? It's because they're touched by the love of God and their life is becoming a riverbed of that love. These are just illustrations. It gives amazing purpose when you live a life of loving up, loving in, and loving out. You, you wake up, you've got stuff to do in the day. You've got people to love. You've got people to love. And then, and then I'll tell you what else this, this love does, is it gives you a, an identity. Because we tend to find our identity in the wrong place. Some of us look to our identity in our pedigree. I'm part of this family. That's my mom and my dad. Yo, these are my siblings. I'm part of this family. My surname is this. We find our identity in our paycheck. We find our identity in our, in our performance. But I tell you, the problem with finding your identity, those things go up and down. Or you find your identity in the person by your side. And that makes for anxiety. It makes for despair when you lose it. And those, none of those things can satisfy you. It's so wonderful that God gives you an identity as a child of God. That's who you are. We need an, no, need an answer to the question, who am I? And the love of God gives it. Maybe let me just tell you one more story and then we're done. Uh, when we had just had Ivy, our third born, uh, a few weeks in, we said, we've got to get out of this house. We're going nuts here. So we went out to this market in Heart Bay called the Heart Bay Market on a Friday night. We got there and we realized we're a bit out of place with a little newborn baby. This was a very trendy hub of what looked like wealthy people judging by the cars outside. Very trendy uh, Cape Town, Atlantic seaboard people. And we get in there and, uh, and then we need food. So there's all these tables and they're packed. The stores or stands are packed. Julie takes the two boys to go get food and me and Ivy find one little seat open in the corner of a table. We sit down, I put Ivy on the table. And I notice across the table, a person who doesn't know anyone, toothless, wrinkled, uh, old clothes. She, she's the most out of place person in this whole market. And I think to myself, I hope she moves because we really need her chair. Because she couldn't afford this food. I was struck by the prices. So I tell you the story to show you that why I need a savior, right? We need saviors. We need a savior. I mean, we're far gone. And uh, anyway, I sit down and I look at little Ivy. And my heart just wells up and I just the words come out of my mouth. You're my princess. And in that moment, I wasn't thinking about God. I suddenly, in my mind, I see a flashing arrow across the table to this, this woman on the other side. And I hear the words, and this is mine. You're my princess. And God says, and this is mine. And I feel so ashamed. Julie comes back and says, what's wrong? Because I'm all quiet. And I tell her, she says, oh, go tell her, go tell her. So I awkwardly wander around and I go, hi, um, what's your name? And she says, my name is Beatrice. I hadn't really thought what I was going to do next, but I look in her face, past the wrinkles and the toothlessness, and her eyes are shining. And I go, Beatrice, you're beautiful. And, and, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what she's thinking now. I mean, dude, Beatrice, you're beautiful. And then she says, I know. Uh, she says, I walk with Jesus, and I talk with Jesus. And, I, and, and I'm undone. So I said, Beatrice, God sent me to just tell you that you're his princess. She looks at me like, that's so obvious, and walks away. I'm left standing there, and it, the penny drops. God hadn't sent me into Beatrice's life. God had sent Beatrice into my life. 
because like so many of us, I was duped. I was looking at people's pedigree and performance and good looks and person at their side and paychecks and cars. None of that means anything. You get your worth and your identity from the God whose dusty hand made you and the God whose nail-pierced hand saved you. That's where you find your identity. You get to be a son and a daughter of an amazing father. That is why I believe with all my heart, and I invite others to believe. And I ask you to stand up. Can we have the band on the stage? Let's pray. We're going to have communion shortly after I pray. You know what communion is about? Communion says this place at God's table. Nobody's excluded. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, if you put your faith in Jesus, there is place for you at the table. You can feast on the Father's goodness that flows through the cross, the, poured, the blood poured out, the body that's broken. And that's why it's such a privilege and it's a reminder of grace. It's like a trampoline communion. We let go of our efforts to save ourselves, and we, and we put all of our faith in Jesus and what he did for, for us on the cross in the mercy of God. That's why there's joy in the church because we keep coming back to the trampoline and the table. Can you guys, uh, can you stop playing, Dan? Can I ask you to close your eyes as I pray for us? And I want to first pray for those of you who are new to church or back in church after a long time. Maybe you came in here not believing in the gospel. Or you're just not so sure what you believe. Maybe you read a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Sorry, my wife is calling me. She just wants to share something. Just regarding that, I just had a picture of um, where Jesus started out. And heading to that time of year, Easter, I mean Christmas. And um, he, he was born in a stable. The most unlikely place for a baby to be born. And he was placed in this manger, a feeding trough. And I just felt God say that there are people here today that might go, I'm not ready to be born <laughs> again. Not in this place, not in this state, not in this time of my life. And I felt God say, I specialize in unlikely births and unlikely places. Wow. So speaking to the same people, those of you, Maybe you don't believe in the gospel, or you've got doubts about the gospel, you're confused about the gospel. Um, maybe you used to believe the gospel, but if you're honest, you haven't even referenced it. It's just a distant memory. It's not a power in your life. But as you've been here today, you realize, oh my goodness, uh, just like I was when I was 16, and I sensed that call like Zacchaeus at the top of the tree. You are sensing the call of God in your life today, bringing you into his family, saying, let go of the cliff face. Trust in the trampoline. Trust in my mercy. Come home to the Father. And uh, if that's you, I would be so honored to pray for you. Uh, I really encourage you, if you're sensing God, that you respond and you say, I believe, I trust you. Um, and you, I mean, why would you want to say no to such an awesome God reaching out into your life? Um, so what I'm going to do, everyone close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to put up your hand, not to draw public attention to you, but just so that I know who I'm praying for. But I also want to give you a chance to consciously respond. So that's me. I'm coming home. I'm coming home today. I'm going to count to three in a few moments. And when I say three, if that's you, even if there's just one person, would you put up your hand so that I know who I'm praying for? And then you'll be saying, God, I want to trust in your mercy today. So here we go. One, God loves you. Two, have the courage to respond. Three, just lift up your hand if that's you. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. Keep your hands up. Wonderful. Wonderful. 
keep your hands up, sorry. Wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. Anyone else? Praise God. Just reach it up high so that I can see. Okay, I think I got all your hands. If I didn't, don't worry, God sees them. You can put your hands down. What I'm going to do, those of you who put up your hands, just guide you in a simple prayer. And, and I want you to imagine that it's just you alone in a room praying. Praying these words. It's a prayer of trusting in Jesus. I, I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you a sample prayer. Maybe you want to say it in your own words, or you can even use these words. Um, and, and I tell you what, can I ask everybody here just to pray along with these people that might be praying it for the first time, or the first time in a long time? Here we go, sentence at a time. God, thank you that you love me. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. Can you say those words? Uh, please forgive all of mine. Jesus, thank you that you rose again from the dead. You're alive and you're Lord. Come and live in me by your Holy Spirit. Take me into your family. Teach me to trust you. Take me into your kingdom. Teach me to follow you. Amen. Just praise God for those of you who did respond. There are a fair amount of you. And the Bible says if just one person had responded, the angels stop what they're doing and throw a big party. And I mean, there were more than there were quite a lot of us. I, I just think we should stop and join this, the angels with a, a whoop and a cheer, if that's okay. Seriously, those of you uh, sensing God's call of homecoming, welcome to the family. Um, sorry to say I'm your brother. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, if I can just say some things to you, it's. It took you a long journey to get to this point. God knew this day was coming. He's been getting you ready. But a journey begins today. It's a journey of trusting and following Jesus. And my biggest advice to you is don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. And when my kids were born, I didn't put them in their own apartment. I said, you're in the family. I mean, that's how you're going to grow up. And the way you grow up spiritually is you, you, you find a family. This church, great church. But if you know another church near you, that's fine. But you need some people that are going to grow you in understanding the scriptures, uh, teach you how to pray. And then, of course, people who you can enjoy God with and encourage you. So my big advice is, if, if this is your church, come back next week. Come back and, and tell the person who invited you, today I pray to pray. And I, 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 something happened in my life today, and I want to take the next step. I encourage you to do that. Take the next step. And there's actually a book here which you can grab. The, the greatest decision you will ever make maybe just help you in the early stages of your walk with God. And let me just pray for the rest of my brothers and sisters. God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to enjoy it, to be grateful for it, to be wowed by it. The trampoline, God, there's a joy, there's a bounce in our step where we understand it. And God, help us to share it with others. Help us to share it with others. Maybe right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, can you think of some people? Maybe they're coming into your head already, a sibling, a cousin, a parent, a child, a spouse, neighbors, long-time friends, someone you work with, somebody you just met the other day. What puts them in your mind? It's because like God used Nathan to reach me, he 
He's put you in their life to be a conductor of grace to them. And I, I, I want to pray for you. God, I pray you would help us just to, to strengthen our connection to that person, to be intentional about reaching out to them, praying for them. Give us creative ways that are natural uh, to have conversations with those people, to invite those people to things. Uh, maybe to lend them a book or a DVD. God, we pray you would use us. Use us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you. We don't save anyone. You do all the saving. So the pressure is off us. But we have the opportunity of sharing grace with other people. Because there's space at this table. There's space at this table. Just if I can say, I know other people would have said this, but you're at a key juncture in this church. I mean, even moving from across the road, the, 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 the um, officer's space. I, in the first meeting, I felt God just highlighting to me, God's also making some renovations in this church. He's getting a, a maternity ward set up for all the people that are going to come to faith in the coming years and decades. 20 years ago, I sat in this room for three months getting trained for youth ministry. And uh, since then, my goodness, a lot of things happened. A lot of people discovered the goodness of God, grown in the faith. I wonder what God's got in store for the next 20 years. I know you might have gone through some pain as a person, some pain as a community, but even that pain is God deepening your relationship with Him and preparing you for greater fruitfulness in years to come. So I just want to say there is excitement in the heart of heaven as this church has a big maternity ward section. And the cool thing about this church, by the way, is it feels like the kind of church you could invite people to who where they'd be welcome to, to belong before they believe. Uh, so you guys have got something magic, not only the gospel, but a way of doing church that I think is going to be very effective in reaching out to people far from God and encourage you to have faith for that in the, in the years to come. Let's join now as we sing the song of the goodness of God and the love of God in the cross. Come to the table because there is space at the table and as you take it, hear the words, you're my princess, you're my prince.